Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Artist Podcast. And today we have a very special episode because we've got four speakers instead of the usual one. And I'll get back to that little bit later. But I need to inform you that this is a collaborative project with an organization called Hype Sri Lanka. And to introduce to you who they are, it's an organization that is uh, focused on uh, the betterment of the youth and implementation of ideas or rather making a reality of the mandate, needs and necessities of the next generation of leaders. Uh, Hype Sri Lanka is Sri Lanka's only youth incubator and we do a tremendous amount of projects that is youth-based and youth-focused. To have more information about what we do, uh, have a look at their website which could be found on my description or on my link on Instagram, um, similarly on YouTube and Facebook wherever you find this media. Um, and what I want to talk to you about is who our speakers are and why we have this set of speakers. This set of speakers were people who worked with me, a project uh, that I uh, focused on, which was the creation of policy proposal for uh, that was to be sent to the uh, parliamentary uh, select committee on uh, on election laws and electoral systems, reforms to it. Uh, and this was a project that my team and I completed uh, in the span of two to three weeks, right? So the four people who we have here are the four focal points, people who carried out uh, the creation and the implementation of pretty much entire chapters and I think have done tremendous work. Um, I want to call each and every one of them individually because they will be taking on of the responsibility of explaining or answering questions specific to those chapters, which would allow you to have a much more clear understanding than it would be for me to explain it, right? Um, so I would like them to introduce themselves. Um, and so let us first and foremost start with Shaheen Abdul Ghani. Um, Shaheen, you can go ahead, Shaheen. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Shaheen. Uh, I am graduating from Gateway College in August this year, and I'm a published poetess. I was a part of the subcommittee at Hype SL working on this particular proposal, um, and I was heading the representation team. Um, so my colleague and I worked on seven proposals specifically to increase representation of women, members of the youth, and members of indigenous communities of Sri Lanka, um, uh, and get them to have more sort of a word in decision in all decision making institutions of Sri Lanka, and not only um, the parliament. Um, so that's my contribution to this proposal. Imad, you can go ahead. All right. So hi everyone. My name is Imad Mohid. I finished my A levels, and I too will be graduating in August. I was the head prefect of Gateway College Tehula, and my contribution as part of the subcommittee on the youth public proposal was centered upon uh, an interesting concept about delimitation and demarcation of electoral boundaries and how it and how it has the potential to affect all areas of the electoral process in Sri Lanka. So I feel it's a, it is of fundamental importance that we have um, sessions like this today to discuss how it could affect um, the future progress of Sri Lanka and how it could affect uh, the elections as a whole. Over to you, Farhan. Thank you, Imad. So, guys, what I... Thank you, Atif. So, what my team, along with a couple of other friends, uh, did, uh, colleagues rather, we worked on the... We worked on the proposal which 
talked about making elections technologically viable. So what we have talked about essentially is bitcoins, ledgers, audit trails, and all of the other fancy stuff that we can actually include in our proposal and in our election system as a whole. So what this focuses on is actually making the entire electoral system much more efficient than it is in Sri Lanka now. And we can do that through the implementation of cybersecurity, through the implementation of technology. And as a result, we can increase accessibility to elections. So I think that is killing multiple birds with one stone. And I'm really excited to talk about what my team and I have come up with. So credit to everyone who worked on this particular proposal with me, proposals rather, and all the other committees as well, uh, which had Imad, Shaheen, and Malin as the focal points. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Farhan Naushad, and I'm introducing myself uh, right now. Uh, I currently have done one year of my business degree at Monash College, and uh, hopefully I'll be doing my next uh, two years in the near future. So I am extremely enthusiastic about multiple topics, two of them being coffee and football, and uh, I'm really excited to be on this show today here, Atif. So hello, everyone. My name is Malin Kaushika, and I'm currently uh, reading for my LLB in uh, CFPS Law School under the University of London programs. So essentially, on my part of the proposal, I looked at how, how the system itself should change, right? What I believe as an individual is to not to focus on giving the party itself more power, but to give the candidates itself the choice to choose their representatives, right? So um, in, in my team, the alternate electoral uh, systems, um, we've mainly looked at two aspects, right? The local government elections and the parliamentary elections. So me and Ar me and especially Atif, uh, shout out to Atif, he, uh, we both worked on the local government uh, elections when it comes to the proposals and whatnot. And my, on, and my secondary um, objective that I worked on in this proposal specifically deals with um, the, um, uh, looking into solutions of election monitoring and to curb election violence in the first place. Right? And to look at, and within that, I looked into certain solutions on how we can regulate finances and whatnot. Uh, with that, uh, back to you, Atif. And without further ado, let's quickly skip to the questions, right? The first question goes out to Shaheen. Shaheen, seeing as though the local authorities' elections are what's coming up next, right? And it's a great venue for minority participants and along with it, women to begin their political careers. What are the caveats in the system that you see currently? And what is it that must be done in order to fix such issues to, to promote more and more grassroots level politicians. So if we are to talk about the sort of limitations that exist, unfortunately, there are many of them. Uh, one of which in particular, which is fairly damaging to representation, is that if a female is nominated through paper and has the highest number of votes in a ward, but is moved to an additional nominal paper list and is replaced by another female or who or another member in itself with a less number of votes, it would allow that position, uh, that person to, uh, to secure that particular seat 
through the PR system that the government currently follows. Um, and that in itself is damaging to democracy because now the person who you vote for um, doesn't get this opportunity of a seat and therefore can't represent you. So a, a possible solution to this um, and what we've mentioned in our proposal is an amendment to the local ordinance to the local government election ordinance. It's Article 28 2. Um, and in this, we want to add a clause that prohibits the movement of candidates in the, in the nomination paper after the submission of the nomination list is done to the election commission. Because quite often, it's after that process that, you know, the moving around happens. But secondly, and I think a little bit more importantly, is uh, a mandatory quota that we have put, uh, requested for, for women in parliament, right? Currently, it's, it's no hidden fact, it's all out in the open that a lot of decision-making institutes of Sri Lanka are largely male-dominated. And the moment you don't have uh, females in parliament, obviously subjects that females want to see discussed and debated aren't out there, right? Um, so we've requested for a mandatory 25% quota for women in parliament. Now, of course, this quota alone is not the be-all, end-all solution, and it's not the sort of blanket solution that you can apply in order to increase female representation, but it's quite the beginning. And you can't just put this female quota in it because the government already tried to do this previously. They failed, and that's because the people who really needed to be in these sort of positions of power weren't empowered enough to get to these positions of power. Um, and therefore, if you are, if we are to reintroduce this 25% mandatory quota for women, it has to come with other things like education and training, like informing them of um, their political rights and educating them as to how um, they can really become an important part of this negotiation and discussion table. Thank you for that, Shaheen. Um, actually, you touched on something that I didn't even ask about. You touched on the parliamentary quota system and the need for a permanent uh, quota for women in the parliament. That was something I didn't touch on, but thank you for that. Thank you very much for that question, uh, for answering that question. Uh, but the next question that I have is for Farhan. Farhan, knowing how passionate you are about digital elections and blockchains, uh, blockchain ledgers, systems, could you expound upon the efficacy of its use in our Sri Lankan election system um, and how it can be used to establish uh, you know, audit trails and making sure that we keep track of the movement of votes, we keep track of the movement of um, funding for conducting the election, and apart from that, matters related to the election. So quite essentially, how we can build up a transparency system using uh, this blockchain system or, or ledger system. So the reason as to why this particular proposal was included been proposed uh, was because of the fact that in the past, not only in Sri Lanka, but in many countries, in many developing democracies, have had claims, even in countries like the United States of America, of election tampering. So what we want to actually avoid through the integration of audit trail, through the integration of uh, blockchain technology, as well as ledgers, we just want to ensure that whatever happens with regards to the election database is not being tampered with. And if it is tampered with, it goes on to the audit trail. It goes on to the entire blockchain system. And essentially, we find out where the change has been made and even goes to the extent of who the change has been made by. And what can happen in this situation is say, I cast my vote 
and someone in the election system itself changes my vote. For example, I voted for party A and they changed my vote to party B. That goes in the audit trail. So we can actually find out or get an independent body to investigate into the elections and find out if any election tampering has gone on. And if it has, to take the necessary action or to take the steps forward to take necessary action against this. So this is why blockchains, audit trails and ledgers are extremely important, I feel, especially when you're going to make an election electric. So as of now, when everything is manual, when everything is not in an electronic format, we wouldn't ever know if something like this takes place. But with the onset of technology, we actually have so much more capability to identify if any but if any change is happening in the election thank you for that farhan i do completely agree that we need to have a system that's as transparent as possible such that we know the fact that votes have been casted a and b we are understanding or the people assured that their votes have been shifted and i i understand that trust in a blockchain system you know it'll take a long time for people to take you know belief that a blockchain system is actually fair but the reality behind a blockchain system, the reason why multiple people invest in cryptocurrency is simply because of the trust in the, they have in such a system. Um, but I want to get back to Shaheen and, you know, I have a question for you. Uh, Shaheen, you talked about parliamentary quotas, right, uh, in your uh, previous answer. But apart from these parliamentary quotas and domination quotas, what other ways do you see to empower disenfranchised groups like um, people not of political background, women and indigenous people, or quite essentially the youth as well, people who lack this sort of funding, um, stand headstrong in an election and say, okay, we're going to win the election. The ability, people who have an inability uh, because of their geographic location, such sort of people, how do you think we can empower them and promote them in competing in more and more elections. Okay, so most often than not, the biggest barrier to entry for women or for members or, who, or people who don't come from, you know, political legacies is their lack of finance because finance essentially translates into your capability of holding more campaigns, of getting your spray, of getting your word across to more people and therefore more people voting for you, which uh, finally will grant you a seat, right? And because you don't have finance, that entire chain in itself gets disturbed at the very beginning, right? So in order to get to get rid of that sort of root cause that all that exists in society, we've uh, proposed uh, we've proposed for women and disenfranchised groups, which includes um, indigenous people, to get access to finances through internal fundraising, media provisions, and the subsidizing of campaign finance. So ideally, what would happen is that the election commission should determine the eligibility of individuals who will be then granted this sort of benefit from a state fund. And this would obviously come after a series of assessments. And these assessments could be on uh, on their current incomes, on what their assets are, um, um, what their financial documents like properties, the property deeds and bank statements look like. And the election commission will also be responsible for determine for determining the terms and conditions of how it has to be paid back. Because obviously, this money, because it comes from a state fund, will have to be uh, paid back. But of course, with an interest rate of zero um, and with a relatively long credit period, because the entire point of 
giving these people subsidies in the very first place is because they can't afford it. Uh, and therefore, all that should be kept in mind when determining what the payback period. It's also very important to note is that this sort of state benefit will only, uh, and therefore, it's only mutually exclusively, it's only mutually exclusive to people who can't receive external finances. This looks like um, new members who want to join the political sphere. It looks like relatively young candidates, so female candidates who don't get um, support in terms of monetary support or even like media coverage uh, for mainstream companies, um, both um, public, private and uh, media companies. So this will be exclusively for them. And it is going to get rid of one of the biggest burdens, I would say, um, that currently exists and stops people uh, from actually reaching out um, and um, and at least uh, start, uh, you know, started political journey. Thank you very much for that, Shaheen. I too personally agree with you. I too believe that some sort of funding mechanism needs to be created because we've established for quite a long time that the fundamental problem in Sri Lanka and all other Southeast Asian countries and underdeveloped countries or even developing countries is the fact that parliamentarians or people who are looking at political positions aren't able to sum up the sort of fund they require. Right? Let's say 50, 60 years ago, we've seen multiple political uh, mandates coming up where a parliamentarian or a member of the house or someone has been chosen merely on the fact of who they are because the public themselves fund that campaign but we it's very hard to see that sort of a movement today i really agree with you and i think even new zealand has uh, done a very similar system with regards to uh, making media available to the candidates i'm not quite sure about the system but I'm very sure that um, in the 2010s a law was passed in New Zealand on that regard but uh, let me quickly hop on to the next question which I have posed for um, Farhan so this question is with regards to double voting and voter fraud right Uh, Farhan this issue the issue of voter fraud seems to have been an extremely hot topic in the last two years right not last two years I'll say the last 10 years uh, the issue of the 2016 elections, the 2020 elections in the US, right? We've had that sort of an issue. And it's not just that, but in Sri Lanka, we've also had that sort of an issue for decades simply because of the fact that the minimum required authentication would be your identity card and few matters which can easily be manipulated, right? You can manipulate the system on election day. Election day regulations have been like people have raised the question if it's strong enough or not. So I want to ask you if there is a sort of system that can be brought in place for better voter authentication, identification, and to prevent this sort of voter fraud that has deprived Sri Lankans, citizens of Sri Lanka, the right to vote, the most fundamental right, and the right promised to them as being part of a sovereign state. Right. Uh, So thank you for that question. It's extremely valid. So this is one thing that we have to notice. With the integration of technology, not everything is going to be seamless. We have seen that in multiple election systems that countries have tried to include technology, but have actually gone back to pen and paper voting. And that was one of the things that concerned me in the research that I did for this particular proposal. But I kept the belief, and I still strongly believe, that technology, if used right in an election context, can take the election and actually maximize the efficiency of an election by a lot. So essentially what we need to do 
the first step towards having a successful technologically inclusive election is to appoint a cyber security team. And this has to be a cyber security team, which is A, reputed, and B, a third party cyber security team that would not actually take any sides in a particular election. So these are two things, the independence and the quality of the cyber security team should not be compromised upon. And moving on to the actual issue of voter fraud itself, double voting, those kind of things, what we have proposed in our proposal is that we use things such as a, a database. So a voter registration database going into the elections. And while at the elections, we actually use the information that we collected from the voter registration database, which includes things like biometrics, which includes, you know, facial scanning, which includes fingerprints, those things that are unique to an individual is what is used when, registra when registration for the voter registration database. And when elections come by, say I go and uh, cast my vote, I keep my fingerprint and I get my face scanned. And then the system knows, so the automated system that we are proposing knows that the vote has been cast from this particular person and will reject any other votes being cast from that particular person as well. So this is what we have proposed to actually, you know, counter voter fraud and uh, double voting. And I think that is way more efficient uh, than, you know, having just a pen and paper and trying just uh, after a person has cast their, cast their vote to cut their name off a list. These are extremely inefficient and wasteful. So I think we can actually counter so many of these problems by implementing technology in an election context. Thank you very much for that, Farhan. Um, I too believe that it's important that transparency mechanisms are of great importance to any state that looks at modernizing itself and going ahead. And the incorporation of technology is inevitable. And actually, in our conversation with representatives from CMEV and IFES, I also realized that they were very much hesitant about the introduction of an e-voting system or a platform that introduces or makes use of technology and they very much emphasized about how countries have gone back. But I think an issue or a fundamental thing that a lot of people fail to understand that technology is not static. It's the most dynamic thing that we have, right? Innovation is the most dynamic thing that we have and it keeps changing. And it's very important that the people understand that in the future we might have better technology. There might be better instances for us and there might be better opportunities for using an e-voting system. But thank you for that. Again, once again, uh, Farhan, and I just want to get to a question to Imad. Imad, understanding... Imad is who took care of the, just because it's been a while, uh, Imad is the person who took care of the delimitation segment of our paper. And so this question to him is on that regard. Imad, understanding that the bar for impartiality for the delimitation process or the delimitation commission, apologies, is merely based on the president's approval. What kind of a system do you suggest be implemented to make sure that the members are impartial in their action? and representative of the people because this constitutional requirement for the president to be um, 
satisfied that these people are quote unquote uh, not involved in political matters isn't the strongest bar to define whether or not they are to be fair they are to be uh, not involved in uh, political decisions the the political situation in a country that's that's quite rare that we see it right i mean yes maybe there is a high possibility of them being impartial members but as a state a legal system needs to be created in order to protect us in all instances not on the basis of the character of a single president or, or anybody but on the basis that the constitution is what trumps us how do you think we should redesign the requirement where it goes from the president's approval to a constitutional approval sure that's a great question atif uh, but before that just for our viewers who may not have a solid idea about what delimitation is about firstly delimitation seems like an alien word at the beginning however it simply means the drawing and setting of electoral boundaries this could be for the large electoral districts or the small electoral units even for like the gram niradaris administrative districts or um those all count as constituencies that delimitation is involved in so the reason it's important is that the delimitation process affects many parts involved in the electoral system so especially in a country like sri lanka which is highly multicultural you see a lot of people of different ethnicities are scattered across the country they're scattered all over the country definitely there are in certain places where certain ethnic minorities are concentrated however if you look at the general aspect if you look at the general part of sri lanka a lot of people of different ethnicities are scattered across the country and why is this important why does this matter it's important because if this is the case boundaries have to be drawn in a way that reflects the rights and the representation of all communities regarding impartiality there are a number of recommendations that the proposal calls for firstly we try to solve the problem from its root cause the composition or essentially who is involved in the delimitation process so for this we call for an amendment to article 95 of the constitution where we are allowing a greater panel of experts when making such decisions over delimitation in the current constitution it does allow for a sort of a loophole of ambiguity because it allows for the president to decide on who is actively engaged in politics or not and we believe this could be somewhat subjective therefore what we call for is a higher threshold or a higher criteria to be set for who exactly constitutes as impartial rather than allow any space for ambiguity or loopholes which could allow the commission to be biased or to not produce the most accurate results that we need secondly we also call for two political members who are not democratically elected and will be nominated by both the majority party and the minority party of parliament to be on the delimitation commission why this is important because you need we understand that the importance of keeping these two ministers in the loop and secondly we are anticipating further problems because a that these people do not have the ability to have a majority in the commission so therefore they can't sway decisions therefore we are actually anticipating problems like gerrymandering which you see is a highly common issue in the us we're anticipating such problems and we're trying to solve it we're trying to nip it from the bud we're preventing it before it can even happen so we believe that such standards are, we are following international values because the fact that two two members elected by both parties the system actually exists in new zealand and what we're trying to do here is we're trying to replicate this the same sort of international standards that govern the delimitation process another important uh, factor to note that we proposed was that we call for the commission to have a term of 3 years so like you said 
this solves the problem of uh, changes in government because when the term has three years, it's where there's a higher likelihood of it being prevented from having um, political affiliations or being affected or the conclusions of the commission being affected by changes in government. So this is another important change that we're talking about. And another way of maintaining impartiality is actually by promoting transparency in itself. We recognize that a lot of the international values surrounding delimitation is actually intertwined. So for example, we propose greater information sharing with the public in a similar model that it's actually modeled after a law, a law if I'm not mistaken, in 1964 in Canada, where the government grants the people the opportunity to present the views and their suggestions on the conclusions of the commission. Here, what we're going to do is we are recommending an official web portal to be developed in Sri Lanka to allow educated members of the community, educated members of society to actually put forward any suggestions and recommendations since they have uh, there's a higher likelihood that they are more aware of the local issues and concerns surrounding the system from the bottom level itself. So we believe that this, uh, this web portal would not only act as an opportunity for public participation, but it also promotes impartiality. Why? Because the more, because you're allowing for the public eye to be engaged in this process. And this, this makes sure that there is a robust checks and balances system that governs the actions of the Delimitation Commission. So therefore, the public is now going to be notified about changes made by local authorities for, uh, for the boundaries or certain aspects of the Delimitation Commission that were not previously revealed. And this is extremely important in order to create this enhanced environment of impartiality and transparency, which bolsters the values that should exist in the ideal delimitation process, as in um, other countries in New Zealand and Canada. What we're trying to do here is replicate that same model in Sri Lanka. I really agree with what you have to say, Imad. I, I too personally believe that it, the system needs to be rethought. Um, and talking about delimitation, thank you in the first place for explaining what delimitation is and how it um, sort of is as a result of land demarcation and its importance in the way we perceive um, how an election works. But, you know, for the viewers, I think you would have a good understanding of the effects of bad delimitation, bad demarcation in the case of Kashmir. Right? We understand that for decades there's been an issue in Kashmir simply on the basis that delimitation had not taken place with the best of conscience of the two countries and there's been constant dispute between the two countries another example that you should like how to say perhaps research on or, or read on is that of um, St. Kitts and Nevis uh, where the it's Caribbean country where the redrawing of the uh, constituency boundaries were done so badly that even after getting it through privy council simply because an election is a short period of time the way it was done it was so um, horrendous that it essentially resulted in the election process itself being affected like you know ballots being printed and whatnot so i think that we see the dangers of bad delimitation here in in those two very examples one is an international example a, 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 a symbol of global um, disputes national disputes and another example of how a faulty delimitation can actually affect the democratic process of a nation. Uh, my next question essentially goes to Marlin. Marlin, vote education is something that's extremely important, right? As people, you need to know who to vote for, how to vote, and how your votes are casted 
and and in the case of voter education especially among the youth it is key to ensure that the will of the people is served right and could you perhaps kindly explain how the current parliament systems and the presidential election systems respectively work uh, so that the viewers understand you know how their votes are counted where their votes go to the importance of a preference vote thank you sure atif uh, but before i move on i would like to apologize to the viewers if they can't see me because i have a technical difficulty uh, but going on to your question yes so the presidential elections and the parliamentary elections work on two distinct electoral systems right the pal- uh, the presidential elections run on uh, on something called the two round or the instant runoff system okay, so this sort of system emphasizes on giving your preference between uh, two um, candidates right between two conflicting candidates who you feel that should take power uh we see uh, in sri lanka we as voters indicate um three pref- you should ideally indicate three preferences right your first preference your second preference and your third preference right on your ballot sheet and um and this is limited to two rounds that's why it's normally called a two round voting system uh, during the count uh, counting process firstly the proportion of first preference votes of the candidates are taken into account and if the candidate has managed to secure a majority by majority i mean 51% or more of the current vote then they are deemed um then they are deemed as the winner of the particular presidential election uh art if we see that in status quo certain members of the sri lankan society mistakens for uh, mistakens the sri lankan presidential election for a, a plurality system or where you choose one person and that sort of misconception arises because since 1982 we we had every single president being uh, uh, being elected from the first round itself with a 51 or more uh, percentage of a majority however if if in the first round no any uh, no candidate is not has not secured a majority and it goes to something called a runoff round right uh, or to the second round right and what in this instance what happens is uh, the the um It, uh, the candidates uh, that have been eliminated and the remaining can, uh, candidates uh, votes are being used when it comes to the second preference right so when when they look look into this uh, all the eliminated candidates ballot sheets they look into the second preference votes right and that those second preference votes are being uh, counted into the remaining candidates who are standing for the election uh, who are standing for the election and the remaining candidates itself those ballot papers they are looking into the second preference vote itself and then sort of the total then they totaled it up right the cumulative total of the first and second votes are added up and in the case that the uh, the major uh, the proportion comes to 51% or more they are deemed the winner of the presidential election right usually usually in sri, in, sri, in the sri lankan context a worst case scenario it will go to a second round and best case scenario they'll just finish off finish off with the first round itself however in the parliamentary election system it's important to know two things right 196 seats out of the 255 seats are elected through a multi member uh, dist- uh, district itself right under the party list proportional proportion representation system what that is is they uh, the parties allocated a number of seats from the quota uh, from each district allocated from each district right the seats 
the total seats from each district is allocated by the delimitation commission and the election commission itself i won't go into uh, in, into deep detail about the process rather uh, and it and the proportion is being allocated based on the uh, voter share that they hold in that district and how they would normally vote is that you choose a one party that you support and you choose three individuals under that party who are contesting your um, um in your district as your preferences right that, uh, and and uh, then uh, they and as a result they look at the uh, proportion of seats in that particular district then they look at the top let's say if uh, let's say if uh, for example party a gets five seats and uh, there are about 10 candidates under that party they look at the top five um top 5 uh, percentage or the pro proportion of vo individual votes they got and those seats are allocated to the um, specific party uh in the parliament right and the remaining seats is categorized as the national seats where 29 where the remaining 29 seats are distributed among uh, among parties proportional to the voter share on a national basis and ultimately the parties have the ultimate choice in filling in those seats and not necessarily the voters right thank you very much for that marlin um i believe there was a beautiful explanation as to how the um, election works it explained how the votes are considered and how the votes are counted and where it is moved right especially with regards to the parliamentary election it can be quite confusing with regards to why you vote for a single person, how the preferential system works, and even with regards to the presidential election, what happens when uh, there is an instance where their uh, a candidate does not reach this fifty percent margin. So I'm very gladful that you know you touched on it, and I hope some other time uh, we could address issues with regards to the uh, local authorities election and even the provincial council election and that would be very interesting seeing as to the local authority elections are uh, of something of a question mark uh, in these few days uh, my i have my question right now is towards farhan farhan i want to ask you or i want you to re remember yourself about what we discussed about you know in our meetings countless meetings um with multiple organizations there was one thing we continuously touched upon and that was the rights of persons with disabilities they are in fact the largest and most spread out minority in sri lanka and the people who and 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 a and lot of people with disabilities who when we spoke to them they they said that their issues were considered as something that could be swept under the rug simply because of how they're spread out and uh, because they don't have the same power as another minority has. Like all other minorities are bunched together in one geographical location and they can use it as leverage and persons with disabilities often lack it. But they are also a valuable part of a society, right? And could you perhaps explain a system that could be used or a bunch of systems that can be used in conjunction with one another uh, to assist in voter registration and the election day pro uh, process to better promote their rights and to promote them voting for. Like, remember the teaser for this um, uh, podcast was actually the question of, okay, we have an average voter turnout of 75%. What happens if the rest vote? And I suppose they should massively answer that question because promoting dis disabled persons from voting, especially in the context of a presidential election, could help 
or, or, or could have a chance of making a very big impact. All right. So this is a particular topic that when you're talking about electric systems, doesn't really come to mind as you go deeper into research, deeper into the topic. Because this community, this minority is pretty marginalized, not in terms of uh, how they're perceived by society. I believe Sri Lankan society has a much better acceptance of uh, persons with disabilities than some other countries, for example. But one thing they're marginalized is, is in conducting their right to vote. So as of right now, as of status quo, the problem that people with disabilities have is that they have to go through a long and arduous process in order to even get registered for the elections. And this leads to many people actually being kept out from voting. It's a kind of deterrence. The current system is a kind of deterrence for people with disabilities to actually vote for elections. Some of them can't walk, some of them can't hear, some of them can't see. And the current system requires them to go to a doctor or to the hospital for some people who can't even walk and get a doctor's letter in order to be able to vote for advanced voting. Now, in conjunction, simultaneously with our voter registration system, we will essentially have to identify people who are disabled and give them advanced voting rights way ahead of the actual election day. And what this does is actually increases drastically the amount of voters that Sri Lanka would have. And the ways in which we propose to do this are in three ways, actually. So one of this is with regards to a person with a long-term disability has to register with the GM. And all the medical records from the past and proof of disability can be used. There doesn't need to be an updated kind of letter for these people, for people with uh, chronic uh, disabilities to vote. So they can continue to use their past medical records, which I think makes the process so much more for them. And what essentially happens is they get qualified for postal voting. And when they get qualified for postal voting, it's so much easier for them to actually vote. So that is one thing. We have another category for people with short-term disabilities. For example, people who have casts on their hands or legs after having a small fall, after having a fracture or a broken leg. So what happens is they also can provide the proof of disability leading up to the elections so that advanced voting is made much more easier for them. And finally, this is one thing that we do not consider in election infrastructure, which, she, which we definitely should, is how accessible are the polling stations for people with disabilities? So one thing we need to ensure is that there are wheelchair entrances for people with disabilities so that at least they can be brought to the polling stations, that we have things such as ballot papers in Braille for people who are blind. And uh, after that, uh, there is also sign language for people or election officials to communicate with deaf or mute people. And these are just certain small steps that go a long, long way in ensuring that disabled people do also have fair and equitable right to a voting in the elections. And over to you, Arthur. Thank you very much for that, Farhan. Uh, I seriously think that 
you know, greater amounts of technological developments and facilitation of voting booths and voting pools is quite important simply because it's these sorts of people, like, you know, their contribution to the uh, set of votes or the total composition of the total polled votes makes a massive difference when it comes to, uh, you know, elections such as presidential elections. But it isn't even about whether it matters about the outcome, right? As a sovereign citizen, it's quite important that we respect every element about them, their ability to vote, their ability to be a social member in all aspects of, uh, you know, uh, being part of a democracy. Right? So I really thank you for that and those sets of recommendations to all viewers. You know, go through our annex page, go through our proposal, and you'll see that it's much more defined. Uh, so the next question I have is to Shahin. Shahin, this question is something that's very important specifically in a Southeast Asian or an Indian context, uh, Southeast Asian or Indian subcontinent. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the process of electing representatives. So the process of electing representatives is through, uh, I mean, in, in Sri Lanka specifically, is through the proportional system, right? Uh, where the uh, a person is elected through the party votes, but then rather they are selected through their highest preferential votes. And essentially that is a democratic process in Sri Lanka. But uh, can you explain how the flow, pro, uh, flow crossing process uh, affects this? And rather, what kind of a system or what sort of a legislative change needs to be brought in order to quite essentially make sure that uh, right, the, the views of the people, such that the legislation itself is a representative of the people's ideas, but not rather their own individual ideas? Um, yeah, so good question. And that's quite, um, and flow crossing is pretty prevalent, not only in Sri Lanka, but in a lot of uh, Southeast Asian countries. So if the viewers don't know, flow crossing refers to the process of politicians switching parties. And as a result, they cr they're crossing the legislation's flow. Usually the move is from the opposition to government benches after they've been co-opted uh, by the ruling party. So currently the constitution of Sri Lanka does not have any sort of legislation against crossing the flow. But crossing the flow is essentially um, damaging democracy. Right? Why? Because Sri Lanka's system of representative democracy is premised on proportional representation, the PR system. So in national and provincial elections, the total number of valid votes cast constitutes 100% of the whole vote. So subsequently to elections, the votes accruing to each party are tailored proportionally uh, and the seats are signed accordingly in line with the formula for representation. So inherently when an MP crosses the floor, it distorts that sort of balance of representation that is determined by the citizens of the country through the ballot box, right? So pretty accurately, um, this is just an explanation of how you said the system works. So anti-defection laws is our proposal to uh, preventing um, uh, crossing the flow. So anti-defection laws were, was first introduced in India, if I'm not mistaken, in 1985. Um, uh, in 1985 and the Indian anti-defection law stated that if a member of parliament or a member of the legislative assembly of India either voluntarily gave up their membership of the party or voted or abstained in, in any sort of um, uh, voted or abstained for voting uh, or defies any party whip or if, it, if he or she joins any other party after being 
elected and being given a seat, he or she will be disqualified from the party and no longer hold the position or even be nominated uh, to a position again. So basically, you lose your position, uh, you lose the sort of position that you gain. Uh, so the thing is, in Sri Lanka, we don't have this, uh, we don't have this sort of anti-defection law currently, uh, which makes it very easy for politicians to swap parties based on their personal preferences, um, based on their own political motives and things like that. Um, but what we could do uh, is that we could model off India's anti-defection law. Um, but what we could do differently is that we could also include rules about requiring the formation of independent committees in order to investigate the sort of allegations of ministers, uh, you know, switching between parties. Uh, and even possibly the imposition of sanctions on members of these parties if they're proven guilty. Um, and another another level to this sort of another level in this mechanism could be from totally banning them uh, from running anywhere in the future. Uh, but of course, you see that these are degrees of you know uh, degrees of a mechanism that can be applied. So it doesn't have to be the most extreme. All we are stopping our aim with anti-defection laws at its very premise will only to make sure. Um, that uh, ministers do not cross the floor unnecessarily, which means, which of course includes uh, their own political motives. Because at the end of the day, an active democracy makes sure that what the people want in terms of representation is accurately given to them. And that's really, really important. Um, so yeah, anti-defection laws, model of India's uh, anti-defection laws of 1985 could be a good way forward. Thank you for that, Shaheen. Uh, quite essentially, it is important to understand that flu crossing is a matter that is very common in Sri Lanka, even in the passing of a very recent uh, amendment to the constitution, the, from the 20th amendment to the constitution, we did see flu crossing happening where members of minority parties switched from their uh, designated parties, or rather uh, the intention of their party or the coalition that they decided to initially start off with and voted for. Uh, the the government right we did see that happening in Sri Lanka and that is not a single um, a specific occurrence too and with regards to how India does it I totally agree that we need to have much more stronger needs for parties to uh, not only parties but rather the government uh, to create some sort of action through constitution or through any other sorts of acts of parliament that ensures that flu crossing is uh, deemed um, um, a crime and flow crossing needs to be punished and with regards to the methods of punishing I too agree that we need to establish uh, severe different degrees of um, voting because especially in Sri Lanka right where it's a parliamentary election and the vote quite essentially the vote is something uh, that is given first and foremost uh, to the party right in the parliamentary elections people don't come in through the first past the post system and they aren't individual candidates right they come through the party and if they come in through the party it's important that the party views are first and foremost represented by them and individuals using their designated powers can do the good they can on their own and the people the people of the nation vote for the party first and foremost and and after that is when they vote for the particular person and again Shahin, i can't um seem to find words to emphasize the importance of uh, a proper uh, anti-defection laws to be established in Sri Lanka, not just through things that are adopted through uh, perhaps a court proceedings. You know, I understand that there is legislation uh, which 
uh, involves parliamentarians being questioned about uh, whether or not their movement from a position to another position is legal. I can't uh, recall, uh, recollect the case names and uh, the exact details of the cases, but I do know there are instances. Uh, but I think that there is no case law that can replace codification of law, uh, codification of legislature, which makes it A, accessible to the people, and B, it makes it very definitive. Thank you very much for that, Shaheen. Okay, so the next question is out to Marlin. Marlin, a very good recommendation that the two of us brought together in that proposal was the introduction of an alternative vote plus system in conjunction with the mandate to increase the number of multi-member wards that was proposed by Dr. Anila Dias Bandaranaika, a former member of the Limitation Commission. Uh, could you explain to the viewers how the logistics of it would work and the benefits that it would reap? A, if it was part of a country where the voters are of a very similar background, similar political ideology or similar ethnic belief, and B, in a part of the country where there is much plurality in population or backgrounds, maybe in terms of their um, religious identity, uh, the ethnic identity, or even if they are of the same religious and ethnic identity, there are political differences. Uh, right. So the alternative vote plus system compromises of using an alternative vote system and an open list, uh, party list proportionality representation system, right? Uh, this sort of electoral system was actually derivated from a commission called the Jenkins Committee in 1998, right? And within that um, uh, particular report, if I can sum it up, sum it up in a very brief form, it sort of advocates for 80% of the seats in the House of Commons to be determined through the alternative vote system and the rest of the 20% uh, to be uh, de determined through an open list system, right? But however, Atif, we, you and me, we decided to approach this in a different way, right? So what we decided was not to um, sort, of not, uh, sort of not to base the entirety of all the seats um, in uh, in the local authorities body, whether it's a municipal council or an urban council or a Pradesh Sabha, to be uh, granted by both these systems, but in a separate manner. So what I mean by this is, since we both ta primarily target in a local government elections, so to keep the election trail as localized as possible, uh, we allowed the single member districts to follow the alternative vote system and the multi-member uh, districts to follow up on an open list uh, system, right? So if I were to sort of give an easy comparison on this is to uh, in single member district, districts to sort of follow uh, the alternative vote system is a similar form of system to the two round uh, system that I mentioned earlier and um, sort of uh, and the multi-member uh, districts follow the exact sort of model un that the current parliamentary elections re represent but it's scaled down to a local level. Uh, we can see the benefits of this on two levels, right? So uh, with regards to part A of your question, you mentioned about voters in a similar background. Uh, we see that individuals do face, uh, who are in uh, these sort of uh, backgrounds do face the same sort of problems and dilemmas, right? And these problems and dilemmas can be solved faster if there's a majority role or a unanimous rule of a party or parties within the, uh, within the local authority that sort of resides within their local area that sort of they're governing their area right 
And in the case of multi-member vote, we see that coalitions sort of can be formed with parties of similar interest. For example, we see a typical example, for example, a ward part of a municipal council in Noradia, right? A major demographic you see within the Noradia district are the Tamils, right? Specifically speaking, the Indian Tamils who work in TS states, right? And one of the problems that they face is proper, proper. adequate housing the lack of ability uh, lack of availability for proper and adequate housing for the ts state workers right and the saw so, and we see there are uh, certain uh, tamil uh, dominated political parties uh, or tamil oriented parties in the noorelia district and if they were to be elected uh, in a specific uh, local authority in noorelia they could form coalitions and implementation of the mechanisms that find suit can be implemented much faster because of the fact they present a united front right and in the case of single member wards the alternate the alternative vote system uh this uh, allows a voter to vote not for just one but more than one candidate who fits that voter's sort of ideal candidate or a voter's uh, political profile right it's all under this we are providing the choice and a higher availability of choice to the voters itself right and part b of your question sort of uh, touches on this whole ideal of in areas or in situations where you have large um, different ethnicities and uh, what not right we see that parties in order to stain power need the support from from individuals of all backgrounds to gain a majority right uh, and this sort of forces political parties from to divert a bit from their aspiration of only securing the vote of the majority this this is because this shifts away from because this sort of ideally shifted away from plurality system where the most votes win and sort of pushes uh pushes for um the electoral system to on a more preferential manner where no votes are simply wasted and every vote counts right so this is all about providing the choice and forcing parties to sort of divert divest or invest in in mandates that typically aren't um that they aren't historically um identified by simply speaking uh catered to every need of individuals who are living in your area right uh over to you adif thank you very much for that marlin uh it was a great explanation and i too uh believe in this whole alternative vote plus system and i think that the implementation of an alternative vote plus system it does one thing it takes the power from the party and it gives it back to the uh people and you might ask okay artif what is the problem with um having you know the power in the hands of a party because ultimately even if it is a parliamentary election we are voting for the party but the local election system or how it currently works is that the members who are chosen are decided by not the uh, person who takes the highest number of votes but rather as to the aspects or, or or the thoughts of the leader and the secretary of the party and the problem we have with that is if you fall out of favor with the party leader or the party secretary inherently that will affect your ability to score more votes or to achieve more votes and come into power even if you are the most capable candidate out of them all and i want to thank you for giving us a great explanation on that regard uh the next question we have out is to imad imad final question for you this is on a, a topic that i really really enjoy that's about the implementation of technology in making available the right of information that we as um, sovereign citizens of sri lanka have right more in terms of technology that we use to demarcate land 
and make information available to the layperson, we are far behind compared to many other countries, many other countries which have made directories available online. Could you elaborate on this and explain to us how exactly we can fix it, the issues that we have with our current mapping system and what needs to be done to keep us in par and informed? Sure. So even I'm really excited about the implementation of technology in the process of delimitation, which is um, more of a new, newer concept these days. So um, before, when I spoke about, for example, the official web portal, there it was more on the lines of impartiality, where the where essentially the public is going to act as the sort of checks and balance system to keep um, to keep the to keep the delimitation commission in hold to ensure that you know what that they're transparent. Here, what we're talking about is that the implementation of technology has the purpose of modernizing data systems, modernizing data collection systems, which is extremely important. Why is it important? Because a lot of the data that is collected in, for example, uh, the census or other data that's used for such decisions make have a profound impact because this same data is going to be used by the delimitation commission to make extremely important decisions about whether to redraw electoral boundaries or how to split certain districts and things like that, which is extremely important. So when it comes to data collection, currently you see that the um, traditional method, the primary method that's being used now, is the data from the census. And if you look back at the census, it's conducted every two, 10 years. So the last census, the last available census, happened in 2012. And this lacks a sort of data consistency that a modern that a modern country with a modern electoral system requires because it fails to record population movements. By this, I mean things like urbanization, the impact of natural disasters. So these could cause massive uh, ripples to the demographic uh, demographic changes in certain parts of Sri Lanka. And this is bad because you are now hindering the progress of the commission. Why? Because you're allowing this opportunity and avenues to go towards things like underrepresentation. So for example, the uh, the issue that happened in Jaffna in 2012, where the number of seats was reduced from nine seats to six seats. So things like that are incidents like that are more likely to occur the moment that the moment a set standard of data consistency isn't available in a country. And it's, extreme, and it's really important to incorporate a respect for communities of interest in the election process. And the way to incorporate this respect is by modernizing data systems. How does our proposal do this? Firstly, our proposal makes use of two important mechanisms. Firstly, we the proposal recognizes that census data is important. It, it's being used as a primary basis. However, we're in, we are trying to complement such a data because in addition, we are trying to incorporate, we are trying to include this bottom-up approach where we are using representative surveys, for example, the household income and expenditure survey, which happens, which is more frequent, it happens every three years and is able to record the population density in areas where community, in areas of interest to the government or in areas where there have been um, mass population movements. So this is, this is, uh, significant in identifying population changes and therefore could provide a better roadmap towards making decisions regarding demarcation. The second system that I'm going to talk about is the use of technology in, like you said, digitizing maps. For example, things like uh, basic systems like Google Earth, even GIS technology, which is highly popular in the UK, along with enhanced satellite imagery. And with the growing opportunity, with the growing availability of such technology, it's allowing for the system of delimitation to happen more seamlessly, right? So, for example, there was a trial run of this system that happened in Hambantota, where they used GIS technology and something called geocoded data, where they were able to digitize maps, right? And this is extremely important. Why? 
because currently, if you look at the system, that the Delimitation Commission still uses maps and data dating back to the 1950s and 60s. And that is that adversely affects the conclusions of commissions. Even if the commission was to provide newer findings, it's not going to be as accurate, it's not going to be as effective as it should be. So what hap what ha what's happening here, what we are trying to recommend is that this trials run, this pilot system that happened in Humboldt-Dota, reduce the sort of ambiguity that exists in demarcation, because for example, it resulted in this precise identification of boundaries and local issues are minimized. Why? Because disputes over personal property, infrastructure, natural landscape features, which are important in constructing maps, were able to be recognized and hence rectified. Such methods could also be extended to other districts. And what is the consequence of this? You're allowing for universal voter suffrage. Why? And the most effective electoral system is going to is more likely to be imposed to generate more discourse and that there's a closer connection between voters and their representative because now the commission has a robust understanding of population density in certain areas and can therefore enact changes that could lead to significant improvements in terms of representation like Shaheen spoke about. So here we are resolving local problems through such a data management. And like you said, an added benefit is that it upholds the right to information because now when these maps are digitized and the process becomes more advanced technology with, for example, the addition of the web portal and the online service, now changes can be made and published to the public to show uh, maybe amendments or redrawing of certain boundaries, which is important for the people to know why such changes take place to uphold international systems and values that should uh, that should exist in a modern electoral system. And this is what our proposal fundamentally tries to solve. Thank you very much for that, Imad. I think that an updated system like Farhan had maintained, like I have maintained throughout the course of our discussion is key in making sure that as a country, we are upright and we are in the hopes of protecting our democracy. But apart from that, there's this interesting point that I wanted to include in the conversation as well, and that was uh, evoking uh, a compulsory period for uh, boundary limitation. And, and I think in our proposal, we evoked a time frame to be set by the governance, to be legislated in uh, uh, an act of parliament, through an act of parliament, along with the annexure that we have. Uh, viewers, you can click the link uh, on my IG page, or if you're viewing this through YouTube, you can click the link in the description or Facebook similarly, and you will have access to the document. But an annexure uh, that we have attached describing the sort of um, things or you know um content that should exist in an active parliament that uh dictates the uh the workings of the delimitation commission and i think apart from maintaining this constant uh you know a uh, period there was one interesting thing that i noticed in a bunch of extremely uh specific and advanced democracies and that was the ability to have specific ad hoc limitations for specific parts right uh, an instance that we could see its importance is when uh for instance let's take for example the first delimitation uh, the most recent delimitation took place in 2007 for instance hypothetically but once the war was over over the country had the opportunity to delimitate or delimitate uh, and have a look at the geographic situation in parts of jaffna and by making this statutory provision, we allow the country to have in itself the best interest it has to the people, right? And and, and this sort of a situation it would have been extremely helpful um, if it had been available to us back in the day. Um, Shahin, last question to you, last but not the least, a question that I think is extremely important and ends on the note of essentially the whole purpose of the conversation that we have today, and that is uh, to ensure that 
uh, the the legal system or national justice system is um, at its utmost peak and it's highly uh, respected in our country, right? Unfortunately, in the recent years, we have seen instances where parliamentarians are found guilty for crimes after being appointed as members of parliament. However, such removal of people in power goes against this democratic process by which these members of parliaments in the first place are brought into the parliament, right? Uh, and this not and this is quite essentially does not represent the view to remove these members of parliament who have committed crime and bring someone else who weren't democratically elected could you give us a model of a system that can be used to prevent this problem from happening in the first place and ensuring that um uh, we have an ironclad uh, legal system that ensures that the democratic process is of its um utmost importance at all time that's quite accurate, Atif. And I don't think a lot of people know this, um, but a lot of parliamentarians, especially in Sri Lanka, are accused uh, are accused, or um, some of them even uh, some are accused of doing um, certain things that are deemed unlawful, uh, and some of them to an extent of crime, right? And that has caused a fair share of public discourse, um, mostly that's negative, um, about how they, the public feels cheated, right? So the best way out, if we ask to deal with that, um, there's a, there is a model which prepares, right? So before I get into that, let me just tell everybody how the democratic process works, right? It's very, very simple. It's all of us go, we cast one vote for a particular representative of a particular party and based on majorities, they get elected, right? So essentially the party that gets elected is the party that a majority of the people want to see ruling, right? Or want to see having a word at the discussion table, right? Um, and therefore, if you have this sort of legislation to disqualify a parliamentarian after um, after they have been um, put into office and you see that they're being uh, replaced by some other person, that's undemocratic on two levels because A, the people feel like they are completely out of their loop because People only vote and uh, continue to vote when they know that their views are being expressed. So the moment they feel like they're being suppressed, which most often happens when you just suddenly replace a parliamentarian. And because there isn't the best amount of transparency within the government, people quite often don't know why these uh, shifts happen and therefore people feel cheated. But secondly, and more importantly, I think, um, it also uh, it also looks bad um, on the Sri Lankan government and parliamentarians and how the justice system works uh, and the justice in Sri Lanka works in the international view, right? Because we look like a country who can't put out uh, candidates who are capable, right? But most often than that, not that's not really the case, right? So the system that we would put in place, the sort of mechanism that we want to see in place would be where the election commission must be informed of existing entanglements that a particular person from a party already has, right? And along with that, so you're not keeping the election commission in office and therefore not keeping the people uh, in the dark. And we also would want something like a character good certificate um, from the sort of party, right? There's two reasons why you want that character of good certificate. The first is that it's easier to hold them accountable, right? Because 
a demo a successful democracy is one that is transparent with its people right and therefore having this character certificate inherently increases that sort of transparency and therefore trust but secondly it also acts as a tool of uh, a positive to a pr tool for the party themselves right because now they are putting out a statement giving these people the sort of assurance that the candidates that they are putting out are honestly the best that the country has to produce right regardless of the sort of existing um entanglements right because a lot of them are merely accused and not proven right and therefore um that sometimes can become very very beneficial right and then it's up to the election commission to file a special action uh naming both the party and the representative uh and then you know you'd have to review their criminal record according to the na- uh, rules of natural da- justice and then it's up to the supreme court themselves to review that petition ideally about 2 weeks before the nomination date comes out and before uh and therefore this must be communicated with the election commission on whether or not that person with entanglements can or cannot compete right? and that's really important by because the supreme court is seen as that one institution that's only aim is to do justice um to uh, justice right to the people of sri lanka and therefore these kind of courts have a lot of role to play in the sort of decision that people make right because, and yeah, these kind of courts are actually these kind of institutions actually are looked up to uh, by people people really trust uh these court of decisions and the decisions that come out of these supreme courts and other important decision making uh institutions really translate into people's actions right so in this case if you uh if the supreme court has reviewed the petition and believes that the person is suitable uh suitable to compete in the elections and have a position of power probably in the parliament or any other a uh, place of power then that sort of confidence will translate into the people and that that's when you see people actually making rational political decisions because a lot of the time political decisions aren't made rationally and that is extremely damaging uh right because the political decision that one person makes i don't think they realize the sort of impact that it has not only on their generation but all the generations to come after so the moment you have this sort of robust mechanism in place you're doing two things a you're deterring people who may have entanglements that they know are accurate to not enter and b you're also really uplifting the entire principle of democracy that sri lanka has continuously um wanted to hold since its very inception so yes i believe that answers your question thank you very much for that shine and i believe too that persons with indictments you know you got to understand that uh, through any legal system the presumption that a person is innocent until guilty uh, until the guilt is proven is important but there are uh, but by maintaining that stance if we are to allow members of parliament to come into power even though there is a very high possibility that they can uh, first and foremost be found guilty and second and foremost make use of this immunity that they gain as being members of parliament is something that's extremely dangerous and that's why a lot of countries a lot of members uh, politicians a lot of activists around the world are even opposed about the level of immunity that even a president of a nation gains right like not sri lanka across the world united states of america right uh, in the us i mean the uk right that's something that a lot of people are questioning but thank you very much for the questions thank you very much for everyone who is here right um, farhan thank you very much uh, imad thank you shahin and same goes with malin but before we end i wanted to talk about a system like final note 
a system uh, that is along the themes of what Shaheen talked about, strengthening uh, uh, Sri Lankan legal system. And that is the introduction of an alternative um, uh, dispute resolution mechanism that is employed during an election period. Now, this system is something that is derived off of uh, a practice, and if I'm not wrong, in Nigeria, where uh, we have a very similar economic structure, a sort of um, political dilemma, and we also have uh, a situation where uh, members of parliament uh, or, or rather uh, election actually taking place could cause a lot of crime and a lot of conflicts. And this alternative dispute resolution mechanism involves where the Ministry of Justice works along with the uh, election uh, election commission and along with that envisioning the, uh, the presidential uh, goal to increase the number of smaller courts, right, the president, the Minister of Justice uh, uh, Honorable uh, Mr. Ali Sabri had stated that uh, they wanted to bring in smaller courts, and I think this mandate really supports that. And how it would work like this: that right? we have quasi courts, mediators, or counsel counselators, or to even introduce lay magistrates, which work with the Ministry of Justice, which will have the responsibility um, of actually uh, ensuring that the conflicts are resolved within the framework or the time period of an election because an election is a very short period you know less than an year like it's, it's even smaller than a year if you are to con consider all the entire spectrum of an election and if we are to allow this to enter into the already stagnant already broken legal system of sri lanka which is in massive backlog that would cause nothing but problems and it would be extremely ineffective because most of the fights the conflicts the arguments that we have during an election period is simply based off of hearsay simply some simply arguments that are unnecessary and take place out of heat and out of the situation and the climate that exists so i think the introduction of an adr system where the government uh, works with our proposal reads through our proposal the annexure that we have adopted and uh, provided explained i think the government could see a great revolution in the manner in which the election is actually handled the um the, the the peace that we would enjoy during an election and to see us in a subpar level of countries that are, are known to be extremely peaceful democracies and with that note everyone thank you very much for staying patiently for this long enjoying the podcast and we would love to hear your comments uh, you can contact us through any medium any forum that we make this available through um, you can definitely check out hype sri lanka who's um um the website will be made available for you and you can check out the work we've done and on that note i would like to say good night and have a great day